Assalamualaikum, everybody. Welcome to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. Thank you for listening in to the first episode of this new podcast. We've got a great episode lined up. We've got Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda talking about how Qalam Institute was started, how it grew, uh, lessons learned along the way, things that the communities can apply, a lot of topics that we dive into that I hope you find uh, beneficial, interesting, inshallah. The one request that I have before we get into the episode is because this is new, uh, if you do enjoy the episode, if you do find some benefit in it, please help spread the word, uh, share the episode out with your friends on social media. Uh, you can tag me on Twitter or Instagram at Ibn Abi Umar. Uh, and please make sure that you rate and review the podcast in iTunes and that you subscribe. You know, all the social media stuff. You guys get get the, the gist of it. Uh, but let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, welcome everyone to the first episode of the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. Got Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda here with me. And we are going to be reflecting on 10 years since the starting of Qalam Institute, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah. So I'm just going to, we're going to go chronologically here a little bit. So let's sure. rewind to about 2007, 2008. Okay. Uh, where were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking at the time? So <clears throat> to really kind of create a framework for understanding what the mindset was there, I don't want to spend too much time in just kind of talking about you know, what I had done or not done or whatever it is up to that particular point. But I had studied abroad uh, for an extended period of time. I came back, tried to just kind of, and, and the interesting thing was I didn't come back and take a job or start working in a different community. I came back to the exact same community I was born and raised in. So I just was more eager to give back and help out. Uh, any way that I could. I was saying, I actually remember like yeah. praying Trawi behind you while I was in high school. Yeah, exactly. When you came back during your breaks, you were still at Armashid. Exactly. So this was my local community. So at first I kind of came back, helped my dad out with the family business, eventually started teaching at the University of Texas at Arlington, but just being involved in the community, trying to give back. 2007 is the moment where... <clears throat> Kind of that masjid that I had been involved with wasn't necessarily the masjid I grew up at. Right. But it's the one I started leading tarawih at, giving khutbahs at, being involved with, um, and kind of basically serving as a volunteer part-time imam uh, for about five years. And it was your kind of neighborhood family masjid. Yep. Uh, they built a brand new masjid. They moved in. And there was this real need of, there was this real feeling of, we need a full-time imam now. Yeah. So that's when I also kind of took the plunge and uh, was the full-time imam of that masjid. So, being the imam, I mean, is it safe to say you had the normal, typical local imam gig? Nothing special, nothing out of the ordinary? Yeah, no. I, I do think, however, thinking back that it's, you know, 10, 11, whatever years ago, um, keeping that in mind, that it was quite a time back. Number two, it was not, you know, one of your mega masajid. Yeah. Uh, so if you're from, if you're familiar with like the Dallas area, it wasn't like Irving or Plano. It wasn't I mean, we're, a we're talking a Juma crowd of maybe 200. Maybe, maybe back then, yeah, 150 people. It was a smaller suburban masjid. It was really nice, and the community was really nice, and everyone was really tightly knit and really close to one another. Everybody knew everybody, uh, so it was like being from a village in that sense. Yeah, yeah, but it was smaller, so. The responsibilities, in one way, it was harder than your typical imam job. Right. Because I had to be like a one-man band. 
I had to be able to send emails. I had to be able to, you know, when when you were busy working and you couldn't, uh, I didn't feel like bothering you to update the website. So yeah. I had to learn from you how to log into WordPress <laughs> and, and uh, update the website with the timings of the prayer, uh, print flyers, make announcements, set up tables and chairs, call a caterer. I had to know how to do all of that. But it was in a certain sense, if you're familiar with some of the very active masjids in 2018, 2019 now, um, it was a little bit easier than that. Yeah. Because it was a smaller community and there just weren't a lot of needs. You could pretty much, you know, touch base with your entire community and it wasn't overwhelming at any point. I think the other thing is there was also not like a, a culture of having a lot of activity. There really Especially wasn't. like, you know, now Dallas has this hype associated with it that mm. it's you know the hub and activity and you know those of us have been here for a long time kind of see through that see through that but it's safe to say though at that time because i remember i moved back to dallas from atlanta in 2007 yeah and i didn't want to move back yeah uh because there was nothing going on nothing here. going on and there's no culture of things going on here Not either. at all so that's why when when you came back and i found like just such an enthusiastic energetic person in you so i was like okay fine I got somebody to kind of ride with me and we can start making stuff happen. Initially, when we started announcing different activities at the masjid, we almost got looked at sideways like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Listen, we'll come, we'll pray, read a hadith, give a good khutbah on Friday, and, you know, teach Sunday school on Sunday and we're good to go. Yeah, I remember I think one of the very first things that happened when you came in was like a janazah workshop. Yeah. You know, like how to wash the body, how to pray, you know, the funeral and prayer. Like, really? Yeah, and people were kind of confused. Like, <laughs> right. why would you teach this? <laughs> exactly. But the one thing that kind of was an underlying thing, and it's not good or bad, it's just always different. Everyone's got a different personality, yeah. and thereby every imam will kind of have a different inclination, a different interest in something. Every, uh, you know, student of knowledge will have different things that they're interested or passionate about. Uh, like now at Qalam, Sheikh Muntasir Zaman, one of our instructors, loves to do nothing more than translate like classical works on hadith. Yeah. Right? That's his thing. Right? Uh, versus that, Mufti, you know, Kamani loves actually like teaching hadith or, you know, teaching actual classes versus sitting there and translating on paper yeah. a classical text. So every, every student of knowledge, you know, person of knowledge has a different inclination. I was always very educationally kind of like focused and oriented. The classroom was always my natural habitat. Right. Um, and I'm not bragging when I say that because I can point out in a lot of areas where that was a little bit of a shortcoming. The first three, four months on the job, I remember it never occurred to me that I got to organize like a family picnic. A yeah. family outing and somebody had to remind me like we should have a social family activity i'm like oh yeah one of those things well, yeah like <laughs> so, check the box <laughs> exactly so just it was a it was an imam job in that sense very kind of typical had its struggles challenges but also had certain things that were very nice about it as well but in the sense of it being like in a smaller suburb and not being very busy that gave me that time to really, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, really develop that area of interest that I had, which was always education. I was always researching things, developing courses, writing curriculum. That was always something that it, it was basically my thing. So kind of like because it was a smaller community, you didn't have the same demands as someone else might where they're 
teaching Gron class four nights a week and then also teaching Sunday school and also, you know. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was, it's funny you mentioned that I would have office hours, you know, sometimes four days a week. Yeah, I remember that. I'd be open for office hours and it'd be like, you know, for like two, two, three hours on like four nights a week, I'd do office hours and my door would be open. Those times were announced. They were emailed out. They were plastered on the front door of the masjid. And I'd be sitting inside my office available to anybody who wanted to talk and nobody would come. So I would just have my books open. I was just researching, writing, taking notes, just doing my thing. It's like a corporate job then, basically. <laughs> it was. Yeah. If, a, <laughs> if it was a corporate job, I would have started a blog. Yeah. That's a smart thing to do. <laughs> but uh, so you're researching and doing all these things. And I'm assuming you get the feeling like I have more to offer. There's more that I want to do. And it was always just that education, just like teaching that was always just, you know, my like I said before, I, I best way I can always describe it is just that being my natural habitat. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, because, again, people gravitate towards like minded and similar people of a similar age and orientation and cultural reference and things like that. So folks like yourself, younger guys, younger professionals, um, you know, we were all very close and we would kind of gravitate towards each other and all y'all had a lot of interest in also learning more about your dean and religion and studying further. And that naturally created the groundwork for saying, okay, why don't we sit down and figure out a way where we can periodically start providing very substantive, knowledge-centric classes, seminars, activities, programs, a curriculum for folks who are interested in learning more. And I think one thing that's worth mentioning also is you know, to put the timeline in context, uh, there's a lot of things that exist now that people take for granted. Yes. Uh, that did not exist at all at that uh, time. To you give know. credit where credit is due, Al-Maghrib definitely yeah, did in, did exist, but Al-Maghrib existed in 12 cities. Right. Not 57. Right. And they had tried in Dallas and no one was interested. Exactly. So it had departed from Dallas and guys like yourself... Uh, folks like yourself, when you wanted to, you and your wife, I remember when y'all would want to take classes, you'd drive down to Houston. Yeah. So that was a reality, and none of the online opportunities existed. The iPhone wasn't invented yet. <laughs> exactly. I That's actually remember. Because I remember you got the first version. I did get the first And I had version. the iPod Touch. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So then we just basically, you know, really felt the need that there needed to be an outlet for people like myself, who had studied and had a passion for this, to be able to impart that to people and the folks who wanted that kind of knowledge that there needs to be something available to them. So alhamdulillah, that kind of energy. And like we had a first couple of workshops. We did Janazah workshop, Ramadan workshop. You're very typical stuff, but we did it a lot more kind of like, you know, substantively as a knowledge-centric activity. Right. Um, and when we did that, it's a class basically, um, and when we did that, that kind of laid the groundwork. And then we started basically, we created a schedule uh, that year in 2007. We created a schedule uh, going into 2008 that every, I think it was six weeks, uh, six to eight weeks, depending. Sometimes you have to kind of shift around because there's a holiday or something. Yeah. Every six to eight weeks, we would have an all day long class, a seminar for lack of a better term. But before that, I remember in 2008, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about get trying to get buy-in from the masjid? Yeah. To which which seems like it should be painfully obvious. Like yeah. you know, people are showing up. We have activities. 
this is a no-brainer. Yeah, and and okay, so I'm the imam at the masjid. Uh, the masjid I was at had actually had some really good facilities. Um, it was perfectly designed and set up to be able to host a class like this. Uh, thirdly, you know, they're because yeah, they had just gotten brand new projectors, brand new professional, at, like thirty thousand dollar audio system. For that time, it was like really it was top of the line, there, top of the line, because we had particularly one community member, a good friend of ours, yeah. who was really into that kind of stuff, and he was really all bought into it. And he was on the board, I think, at the he time. He was on the board, so he he and, threw his weight down and. And it made up. it happen, and so we had all these cameras and projectors, and the ability to really efficiently and professionally have a really great educational experience. Yeah, yeah. But what was the uh, so the... so yeah so all of this naturally makes sense. You got a great facility, you got the the equipment. I'm the imam there, and I'm available. You have volunteers like yourself who are like, we're gonna we're gonna help run this and make this work, and then. The greater DFW Metroplex, there was like in each little suburban area, there was like two, three, four people. You put them all together into one room and you got 50, 60, whatever. Yeah, people, people were driving in. They were driving in. 30, 40 minutes away. So it was all right there. So low hanging fruit. And basically this masjid can become kind of a hub for every six weeks hosting a really awesome activity like that with no cost associated. We weren't going to charge for the class or nothing like that. I think we had... Pitch to the masjid. I think this the meeting that I'm referring to. So we sat with the masjid president and told him that we wanted to fundraise five thousand dollars to get website logo, just and you know, like, yeah, some kind of package. Be able, to, be able to print out, you know, some study materials for people who are going right. to attend, so that we don't have to charge them and things like that. And it should be in context. This is a very affluent community, and the yeah. five thousand was really. A and, drop in the bucket. And we weren't asking 5000 from the Masjid Fund. Right. We were saying, I know people in the community. I will talk to them. But I just want buy-in and... You want to and, do things with the proper procedure. Exactly. But what was the response? And the response was just that, no, this is too much trouble. And this is liability we don't want to take on. And uh, how is this going to add to the electricity bill and the water bill? So I'm going I'm to pause the column discussion for a moment here because this type of mentality that you're describing is very prevalent till now yeah you know every every community has someone that says things like that how do you counteract it i mean on the case of the gullum story it was just wait till the next election and put somebody else in charge yeah, exactly. but when someone's stuck with with that in their community what do they do i hesitate to say this because i don't want it to be misinterpreted into kind of like in a rebellious kind of slant put on it. But I think it's very simply that um, you just have to find an alternative means. Okay. And very gently put, that means... We, so you go to the masjid and you say, look, we don't want to just get together. All of a sudden somebody walks in and there's like four brothers sitting together doing Arabic, learning Arabic, right, uh, from someone... And they walk in and kind of like, what's going on here? You know, did you officially get this? So you don't want that. So you go to the money and say, can we start a little Arabic class here? And then right away, these weird things get brought up. Well, who's going to be here? Who's not going to be here? How do we know it's going to be safe? And what what about the electricity? Are all going to have the lights on? And you just start bringing up nonsensical concerns. Um, Start having the Arabic class at home. Okay. Just meet in your living room and start doing it there. You just got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. Okay. Look, I mean, the, the 
you know, the dean and, and you know, it has to move forward. And so it's so weird thinking about it now that <clears throat> this project, you know, took off from the mushroom. Right. But it very easily could have died based on who got voted onto the board. Yeah. Two months later. It could have, it could have started at the mushroom and died at the mushroom. Yeah. Like a lot of things do. And I want to add a little caveat here. Sometimes this conversation becomes really sensitive for people because they feel like it sounds almost kind of like uh, speaking negatively or derisively about the masjid. No, the masjid is right. the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nobody can speak negatively about it. But the entity, the board, the association, the organization that is managing that space, they are not a sacred entity. Yeah. So you can disagree with them. And they right. can flat out be wrong. The eight uncles on the board can absolutely be wrong about something. Yeah. 100%. But election went the right <clears throat> way, so to speak. It went the right way. And alhamdulillah, we got some really great folks, you know, even, you know, obviously um, your dad and some really awesome folks who came through. And alhamdulillah, really helped us support. It really helped support us, you know, however they could. And every which way they could to really start doing these classes on a more consistent basis. So why, you know, why have programs in the mushroom but branded separately as like the Skullum thing and all of that? What was kind of the thought process? That's a really good question. And ultimately what it comes down to is that, so it, I, I'm going to try not to drag it out too long, but if... The masjid is, you know, or whatever the Islamic organization, the Islamic association of, of X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, there's a lot of things that that name alludes to. Okay. It alludes to the Sunday school, the Quran program, the after school program, the social activities, the youth program, the sisters committee. It alludes to a lot of different things. It represents a lot of different things. When you're trying to do something that is so specifically focused, and because we were trying to make these activities a means of learning and benefit for anyone within driving distance who was really eager to start learning in a very kind of structured manner. Right. They weren't even from that community. Yeah, so 80% of the people were not from We're not the from that community. community. So that's where giving it a separate identity in terms of branding um, allows people to know that I'm going to this program, so I'm not going to be dealing with anything else that's that who, that organization yeah. might represent or have involved with it. Yeah. I'm going for this one particular class or program. So in so February now, February 2009, uh, I remember we officially i think launched with yeah. the chronic empowerment conference exactly so, so we did a we did a nice real big conference alhamdulillah where we were able to get a lot of the community together pull in a lot of the imams and the scholars of the local community and really create some energy and where we announced like this is kind of a vision that we have going forward and again i want to emphasize one thing and i want to emphasize one thing not because it's it there isn't a practical aspect to it but I just, I think it needs to serve as a precautionary tale. And that is the fact that l doing a big conference and launching it and bringing a lot of the local community through and telling them that six weeks later there was a class on the Tafsir of Surah Hujarat that they could attend and that they could benefit from. None of this, putting the conference together, pitching a vision, launching an, an initiative and a program, none of it involved a single penny. 
not a single mm, dollar. Yeah. There's too much eagerness, I think. And may Allah forgive me. Uh, you know, I'm not passing any judgment on anyone. We run an entire, which we'll talk about later. We run a very, you know, big endeavor, a full-time seminary program. Funding is a reality. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of times we fundraise before we do anything. Yeah, absolutely. And we get in trouble. That yeah. catches up to us. We just wanted to just benefit the community with whatever was in It's like our people grasp. showed up at the conference and the only pitch was come to the next class. Here's the flyer. Here's a flyer to show up. And for the next class, we had those handouts in the packets for the Tafsir Surah Hujurat. So anybody that came could get a handout in the packet. I made the handout in the packet. I printed it at the Kinko's and I just paid for it out of pocket. Yeah. Because it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. I mean, everything was done on a shoestring. Everything was done, you know, uh, your brother-in-law designed the flyer. Yeah. Literally. You know, did the, lo you know. Exactly. It was just all, you just shoestring it and, yeah. and do it. But one thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about because, you know, a lot of people ask me like, oh, how did Kalam start? And this and like, you know, we want to do something in our community. Um, and I think there's one trap that a lot of people fall into, which is kind of this all or nothing. Like, oh, we want, you know, we're out in this whatever city where we don't have a lot of resources. We need to go bring in this superstar person off of YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one thing that happened here that I like really want to emphasize. And launch an Islamic university. And yeah, we need to launch, you know, this full. This was like a one day event. Yeah. But none of the speakers were from out of town. No. It was entirely the local imams that even till now, unless you were in Dallas 10 years ago, you probably have no idea who they are. No. I mean, a lot of them have even moved on. Right. Yeah. They're no longer even here. Um, so, but, but for you, what was the importance of making sure that the like local imams are involved? Local imams, because initially the main first primary drive, because we understood is that change is bottom up. And any particular, you know, significant effort and initiative needs to be built from the ground up, just like any structure. And so getting local people to start learning and benefiting and, you know, starting to grow. Um, and then also providing the opportunity for some of the local scholars who had a lot to offer, that they are also part of that process of benefit and growth. Yeah. And that's what went into it. I mean, I remember because I think for a lot of imams, especially, like they have a lot to offer, but the community doesn't provide them the platform. They don't. And one other side thing that as we go forward talking about Qalam, I really want to emphasize is the other thing was I did not want. And I know there's a certain natural component of it that ends up being that way. But, you know, you, you still have to be clear in your intentions. I never wanted this to be personality focused and centric yeah i did not want it to be a showcase or a platform for me so mm -hmm. even though other imams were at bigger masjids and had a lot more responsibilities and had less time and so on and so forth i could not be doing six to eight you know classes and seminars a year where it's just all me teaching it because yeah. then that's about me and what, i didn't want it to be about and me. i remember one of the you know local imams uh, you know, we had invited him to give a talk on the topics and I told him, he's like, oh, I do a tafsir on this, whatever. And I'm like, no, I don't, we don't want that. Mm -hmm. I was like, when you're preparing your tafsir class at the masjid, don't you come across a lot of stuff that you maybe share with other imams or your buddies, but you don't teach in class? Like, yeah, of course. And I was like, can you teach that stuff? Mm -hmm. And then I remember people from that imam's community showed up and they were like, we've never heard our imam talk like this before. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that was kind of eye-opening in the sense that, especially now in the like the YouTube era where there's like seven people who are super famous and everybody else is, you know, quote-unquote horrible. Right. Uh, that a lot of communities who say that they don't have resources are actually just sleeping on what they have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, no doubt about it. I mean, it's, and the tragedy is that as much as much progress as we've made or as sophisticated we've become, we've still got the same problem even now. Even now. Yeah. So these seminars start up. Uh, can you kind of maybe fast forward? So what was, what's next after you, you know, a few seminars take place? So we do about a year, year and a half worth of seminars. Something that started happening really cool was that other massages, other massages started requesting it. Started saying that come do it over there. And so alhamdulillah, we went around the Metroplex and did it in about four or five different locations. And it was alhamdulillah, it was awesome. What naturally happened then was this was creating that student base that we were talking about and people becoming interested and passionate about learning and about taking learning very seriously. That whole education kind of bug I was talking about that was starting to spread and get to other people, alhamdulillah, in a good way. And now what that did was that kind of provided that initial foundation for us being able to take a step forward. So one of the things that, you know, we very uniquely kind of, and again, unique doesn't mean nobody before us ever did, but it was unique in the sense where it was something that we weren't focusing on enough as much as we should up till that point. That's something that we were very passionate about, you and I and others as well, was that we were very passionate about addressing the status of the Friday khutbah. Yeah. That was something we were very particularly passionate about. And so we had, you know, locally, kind of like amongst small groups of brothers. I remember we developed an entire khutbah rotation at the at our at that local masjid yep. where we were both at. Um, so that I, I was just telling some of the students the other day in class at the seminary that there was I remember going back to like two thousand five or something like that, there was a six month stretch where I gave every single khutbah. And I used to joke with you, I'm like, I could get up the next week and verbatim repeat your entire khutbah word for word, and people would come and be like, that was amazing, we've never heard this before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was, it was just tedious, and it's not productive and helpful at all, right? It definitely was kind of like just, you know, uh, people, you know, it's very natural, it shouldn't happen or whatever, but after the Prophet some guess what? At a certain point, you're going to start to tone anyone out. Yeah, the Prophet is the only person that you will not tone out. So, um, and then obviously I got you involved, but even then it's two people. So we started kind of developing this these khatibs and things like that. Uh, and it wasn't just only younger guys; there were some of the older guys as well, Brother Muhammad and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brother Muhammad, yeah, we had gotten them involved as well, and it was really cool. So these were brothers who are knowledgeable. I remember Brother Muhammad was fluent in Arabic and could quote hadith and nonstop and things like that. But we just had to kind of sit with him and train him and give him the confidence to give a khutbah. And he eventually became the most popular khatib in the community. Not me. He was the yeah. most popular khatib in the community. And um, so now some folks from kind of nearby said, y'all got something kind of nice going there. Right. Like you've developed a few khatibs in house. And we said, yeah, I mean, we just we're passionate about it. We figured out a kind of a process for it. That, I remember for me, it was because I did a lot of debate and public speaking and stuff throughout high school. 
And it wasn't until college that I actually started attending Juma prayer more regularly. And I was just saying that I'm like, okay, I don't know 10% of the Islam that these guys do, but whatever they know, they don't know how to communicate it to anybody. Yeah, why can't they kind of piece an argument together? Yeah, or just put two sentences together in, mm -hmm. you know, common sense order. Exactly. <laughs> so then some folks kind of expressed that interest, and this is interesting. So we said, yeah, it is kind of interesting. So then, alhamdulillah, in 2009... We um, kind of put together um, a khatib workshop, a khatib training the workshop. The whole weekend. A whole weekend. And uh, you were there, I was there. Uh, I think it was Todd Murphy spoke there a little bit. Sheikh Yasser Birjas taught a huge chunk of it. Uh, you know, he, we had brought him into town to uh, teach it as well. And... And I'm, I'm not going to name drop, but there were some students there who are actually now proper Shuyukan scholars. Yeah. We can't, you know, claim them, claim them, but yeah. they were there. <laughs> they were there. And, and you know, 40, 50 people was it. But, but they were from all over the U.S. From, I remember, Raleigh, North Carolina. Toronto. Birmingham, Alabama. Toronto. And this is, and this, this is not us patting ourselves on the back. No. We put on an amazing it workshop. But it's... But it was also, it was filling a need because it, no one was doing it. And it was very intriguing. We were kind of like, okay, there's inter that's interesting that there is a real need for something like this. And so that was kind of the first serious step to now Qalam kind of galvanizing into more of an institution. Going yeah. from being kind of like a local, like a very organized local advanced study group in circle right. to becoming like an actual institution. And so if I can, so one maybe theme that I want to highlight when, you know, those one day seminars on the weekend first started, uh, I remember that you were very particular about each seminar having a very heavy uh, Quranic focus. Yes. Uh, but, a, but a Quranic focus with a very practical application mm -hmm. so it wasn't like the typical weekly class but it was something where people came they sat for four or five hours but they left with some type of meaningful lesson that they could absolutely go and apply and that's where that's where the trick is right that obviously knowledge needs to be continuous and it needs to link forward to more knowledge but at the same time the trick is um also at the same time trying to structure it in such a way that just taking that one particular session does give you a very measurable, practical benefit that you can implement. That you left and said, okay, I went to this class. Now that I left, I did X. Exactly. And, and now I'm, you know, a teeny bit better for having done X after this and class. And that's something that's permeated through everything that we've done till today. And so I was, was going to say was kind of the, is it safe to say that was kind of the vision not carrying forward is this Absolutely. idea of uh, a functional... Islamic knowledge. Absolutely. Right? So the khutbah is very functional in the sense that if you can deliver a good khutbah, it has a positive impact on the community. Absolutely. And then now, so how do you how do you bridge the gap from, you know, let's say khatib, so seminars, khatib training to, I'm going to kind of fast forward a teeny bit here, but to now seminary where you're producing, now people are leaving being youth directors or in some cases, full-time imams, assistant yeah. imams. Uh, sisters, religious coordinators, Islamic school teachers. So filling roles that are very tangibly affecting the community. So 
there definitely was, and I, I mean, that was a huge leap, obviously, yeah. from one to the other. But but that 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 systematic progress was there because what now happened was, while the next step after like the Khati workshop, we continued with the seminars and things like that. The next thing that I think developed was we started the Sira podcast. Uh, after that, then intensive and Sira podcast was what twenty eleven twenty eleven when we used to launched it. So still going, still going. Yeah. That was. Uh, that's the comment that I get from most people like, man, it's been going and it's still just going. And I'm like, yep, it's still going. <laughs> it is definitely still going. So, and then we started doing some intensives and things like that. By the way, you need to have like a plan out the finale. Yeah. Because I think people are going to come in. Okay. Inshallah. We'll Actually, see. people have told me. Okay. They've literally told me. They're like, if, if he announces when it's going to finish... Like, we might fly in to attend the last one, just because people have been following it for years. Yeah, yeah. It'd be nice to meet those folks as well when I travel around and I meet people. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting is a lot of times with YouTube and stuff, there's kind of the fanfare kind of stuff, which, again, I appreciate, you know, people appreciating what we do. But it's kind of the fanfare stuff. It's not really my scene and makes me a little yeah. uncomfortable. But when people very seriously follow the podcast, that, that has no fanfare If someone's been it. following... The same thing for like six years. Yeah. The fanfare element's kind of gone. It, it's not. <laughs> and it's almost become like a systematic part of their life where they're like, I listen to it. I think about it. I take notes and I try to implement those lessons in my life. And I really feel a sense of connection with folks like that. Yeah. yeah. So we started then doing intensive. So you see this progression of like, how do we keep taking learning? So we're doing these seminars, learning. And, know, if, and if I can, syrup, the Sira podcast, the same kind of mentality of a practical application of the lessons practical application number two it is something that's going to continue on to other things number three though every single session will have such a definitive start and a definitive end where if all you were all you got was that one particular session you walked away with a practical benefit that you can implement in your life even if you didn't know anything else about the zero prior to that episode you just got that one right in the middle and that's why it's everything I force myself to sit down and be able to definitively say, what is, what did we talk about today? Yeah. What did we talk about? Not just, here's number 118, period. No, right. no, no, not that. Because then that means, unless I got 117 and then I'll get 119, 118's not really going to benefit gonna be useful, me. yeah. Exactly. So it's 118 and then it says the you know the prophet's return from the treaty of Hudaybiyah. yeah so it's a very definitive thing how did the prophet come back from Hudaybiyah? what conversations did he have what experiences did he have what did he share with us in that journey back what did he talk about and what can i learn from that that how do you come back from having experienced something that was really really difficult emotionally on you how do you come back from that Right. And so so that was the idea. Then there's that. So workshops six times a year to now something you're listening week in and week out and learning. Then intensives. Now come stay with us for a week, two weeks, a whole month. Stay with us morning, afternoon and evening. We're studying. We're going to pray together. We're going to read together. We're going to, you know, study together. We're going to eat together. We're staying in the same uh, facilities like the same hotel or whatever. Um, and we started doing intensives. And that really now started to develop that energy. Right. And the next natural progression was, now let's provide a place where students can come 
and study full time and really so you kind of see the progression there from going from workshops learning a, a few times a year to learning on a consistent weekly basis to now dedicating two entire weeks to studying the life of the prophet or entire month to studying arabic and tafsir to now studying full-time as a student of knowledge and you're kind of giving a very quick summary but you know people will maybe start listening to the podcast mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> then they'll be like oh let me go take a intensive oh, uh, an intensive right maybe one week intensive or maybe mm -hmm. one month and then that person might say you know what this is really sparked something now i want to go study for a year or two mm -hmm. years or three years that maybe before never would have considered absolutely going and studying absolutely but one thing i want to I want to highlight though is that this is not just like a it's like a sales funnel or something like that, no. but this is actually a relationship with knowledge that's built over the course of years. Yeah, it's growth, it's development, it's growth, it's a person growing. Can you talk a little bit because I think now, especially with so much stuff being online, there's a tendency that that process, right, that someone sparks something and they kind of gradually make that change and say, okay, I'm going to go study full time or whatever. It might take a couple of years. What's your maybe commentary on people that are trying to shortcut that process and kind of hoping that this takes place like instantaneously? I, it just doesn't work. I mean, both from there's people that want to make a sudden change in their own lives. And then right. there's like you talked about the funding aspect. There's people who need to, yeah. you know, you need students. Get something up and running. You need something like up in, and running. In six months, not six years. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think... I, I, how are you able to have the patience to write it out for a few years to make it happen? Because it's very easy for someone to go to a Qalam website right now and be like, oh, there's a four-year Alam program. Not realizing that there was like 10 years of groundwork yeah. laid slowly, slowly leading up to it. I will say two things. Number one, and I hope some, nobody thinks this is kind of preachy or cheesy, um, but literally looking at the life of the Prophet mm -hmm. What he left... On the last day of his life, the night before he passed away, what he left, it took him, the greatest human being that ever walked the face of this earth, who directly communicated with God and received revelation, it took him 23 years to build that. With all those quote-unquote advantages. With all of those privileges, advantages, you know, that are, that are, that are divine privileges, yeah. divine advantages. God bestowed upon him revelation. what no other human being will get. And in spite of that, it took him 23 years to build that. I, you, I, you can't shake that. And the most growth didn't even happen until... Yeah. Years later. Years later. First 13 years was just kind of surviving. The next 10 years were thriving. Yeah. Nobody thinks about this stuff, right? And then, and then secondly, to see it a little bit more closer to you in a more practical form, I looked at, you know, my teachers, I looked at my mentor, that the institution that I went to and studied at for a decade and learned everything I learned at, thousands of students and so profoundly beneficial, it took him 30 plus years to get to the, when I went there to go study, that institution had already existed for 25 years. And that's basically a young person's lifetime. Yes, absolutely. The institution's been alive longer than I've been alive. When you went to go study and then you put another 10. Yeah. So, so you got the seminary up and running. Can you talk a little bit about the types of students that are coming in? Uh, you know, what are their goals? How is Gullum helping them to 
you know, fill these roles and provide, lack of a better term, that functional leadership in the community? So the, the one quality that I feel is consistent across the board is that we have extremely, extremely dedicated and motivated people who come. And that's not, again, I'm not complimenting myself, I'm complimenting these students. Because we usually get a little bit of an older student. Mm-hmm. Majority of our students have graduated college. They've been around the block a little bit. Half of them have worked professionally. And then they are able to find the opportunity in the place where they can fulfill what their real passion and their dream was. And that was to learn and study this religion and understand it at a very deep, profound, meaningful level. So do you find people that are coming for, I mean, people are coming all different types of goals, personal enrichment, leadership. Uh, What have some of the students gone on to do that have come through the program? So what's interesting is um, we, so even it's interesting kind of just taking a step back to your idea and your theme of kind of like building up to something that was ingrained in me very early on um, from even just like a business practicality sense. Uh, for anybody who knows what this means, I'm Maimon. I was about to mention that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're business people, uh, you know, and um, so my dad had a business. My dad ran a couple of businesses. My uncle had a business and scaling and building and, and slowly and steadily, sustainably growing was a very, very important philosophy. And then I saw that with the institution building, like I mentioned with my sheikh and my mentor. And then I talked about that from the Sira as well. So when we first launched the seminary, what we said was Arabic is a prerequisite. Go get your Arabic prerequisites elsewhere. Get That's not our there. job right now. Not right now. We're not taking that task on. We started with only a one-year Islamic Studies certificate program. That's all we started with. And we graduated three batches out of just of a one-year program. That did not make them a scholar or an imam or anything. Yeah. But it was an Islamic Studies certificate. It could serve as your foundation for further Islamic studies. We just, but, but the idea was I need to, we need to kind of build this properly. After graduating and operating for three years with that premise and graduating successfully three batches of students from that program, and after graduation, they're students, they're intermediate students. Now they start as beginner. Now they're intermediate students. We then said, okay, now let's take do the next phase and start building out the Alamiya, the scholarship program, which is going to be a four years of Islamic studies. Ultimately, we got a lot of feedback saying that there's not, you know, a, it's not very easy to find those Arabic prerequisites and fulfill those. Yeah. So can you please have an in-house program? We down the road eventually added one year of Arabic and then four years of Islamic studies. We this as we're having this conversation in 2019, the early part of 2019, we have our first graduating batch coming up this summer from the full five year curriculum. The first batch is coming up. So it's not like what students have necessarily gone on to do. But it's more so what students are going on to do. Gotcha. And alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah, the need, there's such a need in our community that s- some of our students, a couple of them have already been tapped and even been sent by their communities to go through the whole curriculum. Yeah, and this, for me, this is actually the most uh, inspiring kind of 
thing in the sense that not all hope is lost, so to yeah. speak, because, you know, sometimes we talk about communities and massages, it gets very easy to get very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a number of communities that are taking the initiative of, you know, not posting the Superman imam job posting, but they're actually identifying talented people in their communities and investing in them and saying, go and study for a few years yes, and then come back and, and then come back and lead us literally serve the community. So we have a few of those. So they're going to be going back later this year to their communities to serve as their imams. Uh, we have a, uh, a female student, a sister who's one, the, one of the sisters, actually the final, the batch, the first kind of graduating batch from the full scholarship program. Five year curriculum is about nine students Three are brothers, six are actually sisters. Um, And one of those sisters has already been, um, you know, kind of selected and introduced to the community as a female resident teacher uh, for the community and for particularly the sisters in the community. So one, a a couple of the students who are... How many mushrooms do you know that have that type of a role even? I am aware of two, maybe three. In the whole country? Yes. Which is really sad. Which is terrible. Makes me sad. I mean, you know, uh, it. I. I just can't fathom it. So one. One thing. Uh, not to sidetrack here too much, but can you talk a little bit about the value that you placed on uh, accessibility for the sisters in particular? Because uh, I know it goes all the way back to the very first Khati workshop that we had. We had a sister registered. We kind of all freaked out. Like, why does this sister want to give? And it was someone that we know. Yeah. And she's, you know, very active, very, you know, studious. religious, studious, like very good, active sister in the community. She's like, I want to take this. We were like, we know you're not trying to give but Like, yeah. why do you want to take it? And she's like, well, because I want to learn those skills of presentation. Exactly. I teach Sunday school. I work with the youth in my community. I do Islam 101 presentations. I need to be able to effectively present. And so that was a very early realization that sisters are equally, if not even more, dedicated and interested in learning. And they're very amazing, disciplined, traditional-minded, respecting of the Islamic tradition, the Qur'an and Sunnah. These are really remarkable sisters, and they want to learn. So from the day we opened the doors of the seminary, we always made sure that there was equal, completely equal, um, facilitation and access for the sisters in the community and that um, we made every opportunity available while maintaining dignity and respect and decency in the environment making sure everyone's kind of got their own spaces and everyone's comfortable and everyone it's all appropriate but at the same time not compromising the access of the sisters and have you had actually, I think, more sisters come through the program than brothers? Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, we've had way more sisters. Just like this is that graduating batch I'm talking about, the ratio is six to three. So there's a, there's a lot of communities who want to start up activities, uh, you know, do things to get the community behind something, establish some kind of a vision. What would your advice be to, uh, you know, Islamic centers, communities, whether they're big or, you know, small or large, uh, how do you get something going that's meaningful and practical for people? I think the first thing is obviously quality. You have to focus on the quality of what you have uh, and not obsess about quantity at all. I know that sounds very preachy and I know that sounds very cliche, but I literally don't know what else to tell somebody. 
So it's just literally have the amazing class even if five people are showing up. 100%. Okay. 100%. People still don't realize... Because every, people still see that as a failure, yeah, metric-wise. I, I mean, you've come to... In in person, you've probably attended the most of the CIRA, the what the people know as the CIRA podcast. That's a local class I teach. You probably have attended in person more than anyone else. And because I really don't care... I never talk about how many people actually attend in person. Well, that's my chance to get time with you. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's essentially so empty. It's essentially so empty that it serves as a really good way to just kind of meet up with a couple of buddies and hang out. We can just name the elephant in the room. The reason that there's background noise is because we're recording this at a play date. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so basically, I tried to kind of wave my arms and tell them to kind of keep it down, but it's pointless, That's so fine. we might as well just in- include them into the podcast. So I, so you, uh, uh, your Aisha is how old? Ten. Yeah, so Ten. I have an 11-year-old, you have a 10-year-old who basically grew up together, so they're buddies, and then Hania is... Seven. And my Aisha is nine, and they grew up together, and so, yeah, they're basically hanging out and playing and having a good time and creating. And now they're quiet because you know we're talking about. Yeah, them. because we called them <laughs> out. Never mind, they picked back up. They're back on it again. So yeah. Um, so, so the local community. The other the other question was in terms of well, actually, let's let's talk about the local community for a minute. Uh, so even when the numbers aren't there, how does someone know that they're on the right path? Because it's. The numbers is the easy thing to look at mm-hmm. and say, okay, we've been doing this class for three years. The same seven people keep showing up. The youth aren't coming. Mm-hmm. They're not engaged, this and that. Isn't it safe to just call this a failure at that point? I do think that, look, there are some critical assessments that have to be made. But again, a lot of times it's because we don't have a specific focus. We haven't clarified the intention Right and and really developed a really laser-like focus of what the objective of the program is. Now, yeah. if the program is a youth program and no kids are coming, you do need to reassess. Yes. But see, you can't reassess. You can't assess yourself and how you're doing if you never had an objective and a focus to begin with. So I think that kind of goes back to that. And I think I guess the mistake most people make is their objective is simply getting people in the door. Exactly. We never had, what are we doing? A CETA class. What does that mean? I've always had a very clear focus. The objective of the CETA class is it's a CETA class for the family, for the general community. So when there's not a room full of 16-year-olds, I don't doubt the effectiveness of the CETA program. But when there are some 30-year-olds, some 40-year-olds, some 50-year-olds, a couple of 20-year-olds... That's a target demographic from working professional to family people to some older folks as well. More of that older demographic for them to be able to connect with the life of the Prophet It's a laser-like focus. So for yourself, so in the, in the role of the teacher, if you're not looking at numbers, mm-hmm. right, but you still need to validate feedback somehow, mm-hmm. what type of comments are you listening for that let you know, okay, the feedback that I'm getting is showing me that I'm fulfilling my objective versus what kind of comments let you know that I need to course correct. So what I'm looking for is that people saying that I understand what was taught, what was communicated. I was able to remember and take home a few points from it. 
and it actually helped me in X, Y, and Z situation. Right. If I hear that, even if it's two, three people, I'm completely happy with what's going on. Because now you got validation that the ultimate intent that I had in mind was fulfilled. Absolutely. Um, one of the, Whether it's two people or 200, then doesn't matter. Exactly. Uh, one other th- a piece of feedback that I get that really encourages me to keep the CEDA class and the podcast going is when parents will say, I listen to it and I'm able to pick up a couple of things that I find very practical and beneficial and I'm able to sit with my kids in the evening and process that as a parent and be able to share it as advice from the life of the process I'm with my children. Hmm. I'm like mission accomplished. Yeah. Mission accomplished. I'm educating the parents. That's what I'm trying to do. And on the flip side, what you're looking for, which that you know, is that when people are expressing the idea, you know, for example, with the CEDA class, I don't understand what you were talking about. I got confused. Okay. So what exactly is going on? Um, I don't really understand what we're doing here. Like things like that. Just somebody just feeling lost and confused. Knowledge is supposed to create clarity. Right. But if it's clear, if it's making things more hazy. Then your immediate reaction basically is, I got to go back and redo this. I got to go back to the drawing board. Okay. I'm obviously not doing something correct here. Absolutely. So less, much less with who's turning out and how many. Yeah. But much more on... Effectiveness. Effectiveness. So even if one person was unclear, that you take that much more seriously than... Absolutely. Only one person showed up. Absolutely. Okay. So when I'm teaching a tafsir class, so somebody's kind of like, oh, you know, uh, we should have more like activities and just some more fun during the class and this and that. I take that and I'm like, okay, I'll try to figure out how to do that. Yeah. But did you understand the meaning of the surah? And they're like, yeah, 100%, I got that. Is that okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. I understand. I might not just be the right person. I might not be as entertaining as you had hoped for. But the objective was achieved. Versus somebody came and said, I still don't really get what the surah is saying. I don't care how much fun everybody had. I failed the mission. Okay. So that's local community level. Talk a little bit about, you know, now you said you've got students that have been there now four or five years. Obviously, you're not teaching everybody by yourself. Yeah. Uh, you've had to, over time, build out both a, a staff and administration, uh, but also a faculty. Yeah. Uh, what was the process in building both of them out and what were the challenges that you had to deal with? So, going back to where we started, right? So, when we opened doors to the seminary, one-year program, 15 students in a room, and I just gave them every ounce of my being... I dedicated that year to making sure that they could learn as much as possible and benefit as much as they could. Um, And that, again, see that emphasis on that quality of what you're bringing, that that commitment, that laser-like focus. What that resulted in was 15 students leaving there having really profoundly benefited. Right. Now, believe it or not, what those students experienced and how much they benefited plays uh, played a large role in the, ins- the the faculty, the teachers, the instructors that I wanted, them wanting to be a part of this. What do you mean by that? That they immediately, you know, they even before I had ever spoken to them, they came into contact with these students and said, oh, hey, 
And I had, you know, some kind of personal relationship with everybody who eventually became a teacher and instructor at Qalam. So um, they're kind of like, oh, I spent a year down at Qalam. And they're like, oh, with Abdul Nasser. They're like, yeah. Uh, how was it? It was amazing. I really benefited. It was very beneficial, etc., etc. I learned a lot um, and shared. They were just glowing about the experience and not so much about me, but about the about, knowledge. About what they learned. About what they learned. Because there's a lot of programs. I, I mean, not, but people can go through programs and still not get anything, but they'll still fawn over the speaker was amazing and or that, the XYZ was amazing. And that was the thing. The only thing I will. Include, and for people of knowledge, those become red flags. Yep. And the thing that I will include about myself and not again to congratulate myself, but to share with people, because I hope it kind of sh- provides some insight to someone that it wasn't necessarily my charisma or my brilliance or my intelligence, which I have none of that was really leaving that impact and impression on them. What was leaving impact and impression on them was that I dedicated every minute outside of my family that I had, I dedicated it to those students. I would literally call them over to my house in the evening and feed them in my house. My wife would cook for them. I would feed them. I would serve them. I would uh, help them. I would answer every question that I had, teach them, gave them that full like dedication, devotion, that attention. Because that's what knowledge is about. It's about growth. It's about transference from the heart and the chest of one person to the chest of another person. And then ultimately the credibility comes from those students then going and sharing, this is what I got out of it. Absolutely. And And then that makes people that know what they're listening for, their ears perk up. Exactly. And then, like I said in in the beginning, I never wanted it to be about myself. So then when... It's time to really build something out remarkable. And I reach out to amazing people like Mufti Kamani, Mufti Hussein Kamani, Sheikh Mikael Smith, Sheikh Muntasir Zaman, Ustad Abdurrahman Murphy, reaching out to these people. Then they're very excited and eager to be a part of that. Right. And when students, and when we're telling that now we're growing this program, and now students that are getting you know, feedback from other students who have benefited are also very excited that this is a place where I can dedicate my time, my energy, my, 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 my time, my life, and I can actually come out having grown and learned from this experience and this endeavor, then that would, that's what basically creates, I forgot to mention also one of our Ustad Ubaidullah Ahmad, who's the Arabic instructor. So now what that results in is five full-time classes seven instructors, a hundred full-time students studying in person at the seminary. But that takes a long time. That takes a lot of dedication, devotion. That takes a lot of hours and effort and, and, and tedious work to actually get to that particular point. There are no shortcuts. Well, what's some, you know, when you said there's no shortcuts, there's... And again, we you know we want everyone to be successful. We want all efforts that are going in the community to you know succeed and benefit the community, inshallah. Uh, but you know there are a lot of new things popping up. Yes. Right. There's lots of things online. There's programs out of local masajid. Yeah. What are some things that you've seen? You know, maybe having a few years into it, maybe things that people should watch out for. Right. Certain pitfalls, maybe that you can say like, hey, we hit that roadblock. Watch out for this, and you know, in that journey of establishing something. I, I'll give kind of a, a little bit of an analogy. 
Uh, I'll use an example. If you have a website or if you have social media, if you have a social media presence before you have a curriculum, you have a problem. That's a good way of putting it. That's I, that's the best way I can put it in a very millennial framing. Fundraising before. If you're fundraising before you've taught anyone anything or provided any benefit to anyone, you have a problem. I think that's something that's becoming more common now. Is Very common. And again, yeah. somebody might look at Kalam and say, okay, it's so specifically educational. That's very specific. One of the projects that Kalam, you know, um, helped establish and create here, because I'm a part of this community and I want the community, general be community benefit. One of the projects that we helped establish here was Roots. Right. It was Saad Abdurrahman Murphy. He's dedicated to it full time. Again, we didn't ask anyone for a single penny until we had done programs and classes for a couple of years, activities and stuff for the community for a couple of years. And then we even then, you know, kind of just to borrow business terms, I don't like business terms in this arena, yeah. but just to borrow the term, Qalam just kind of seeded, fronted the initial six months of expenses for even leasing a space and starting a full slew of community programming at Roots, the community space, before we opened up a sustainers campaign. So people got to go there, benefit, learn, the whole family, young, old, brothers, sisters, everybody, mommy and me, fatherly, motherly, all these different yeah. programs, heart work, everything that's going on there for six whole months before we said, okay, can y'all help us just pay rent? You know, it's, it's really funny. The, the That very first Gullum program, that conference, I remember that people were actually legitimately surprised that we weren't fundraising. Yeah. Because people actually came and they asked, where are we supposed to donate? And we, and we said, were like, we're not taking donations. We want you to come to the next class. That's literally <laughs> it. Literally it. We told them, we said, we don't want your checks. We just want to see you in six weeks. And that's also kind of the indicative of the mentality that people are like, oh, okay, yeah. when are you going to make, when are you going to make the ask? When exactly. Are you gonna make the... And I mean, even at the seminary and you know, because you've been there since day one for Qalam and the seminary as well, is that we never ever fundraise and raise money the fun time the first time we asked people to contribute and help for the, with the seminary was actually for scholarships for worthwhile students and that too was four years after the seminary had been running full time right full time so up until that point we had had a lot of students on scholarship but we just kind of internally fronted those scholarships you have to build something. You have to give something. You have to show something before you ask for something, before you take something. Where else would that ever work? I think the issue that most people have is they just want a shortcut. Yeah. And usually money is seen as the shortcut. It is. That if we have XYZ budget, then we can so quickly do, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to do. And I mean, we were just talking about it kind of off mic uh, before the podcast that we were talking about a particular... Uh, example that we had seen in, you know, uh, and this is not Islamic or religious, so don't worry, we're not throwing any shade on anybody. <laughs> it was actually a business that we saw that um, had a ton of money in it and still completely failed. Yeah, couldn't produce anything. Shut down in two years. It was a business. Somebody started a business with a ton of seed money. And there's, there's popular stories out there that, I mean, we were also off mic talking about the whole, like, Elizabeth Holmes Theranos thing. Yeah. Ton of money, 
nothing came out of it. Meanwhile, you can have a very, very humble, but yet dedicated, consistent, sustainable, committed to quality beginning, and it can actually succeed and be something. Last question, maybe we can close with this. Um, you know, obviously, efforts that are successful, uh, there's a huge element of barakah and blessing yes. uh, that carries these things forward. Uh, what are ways that, and again, whether it's large-scale seminary, 100 students, you know, whatever, or it's the two or three people at their local masjid just trying to start up something on a random Saturday for their small community of 30 families. What can they do to kind of get that, you know, we, we say it's like the secret ingredient. Yes. You know, it, it'll put a lot there where maybe you might not see anything. Uh, and, and I'm glad you're asking this because I wanted to conclude by emphasizing this. Um, number one is, of course, you have to pray. You have to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for acceptance. You know, this is one of the first teach, first lessons that my mentor taught me. And it's in the Quran. When Ibrahim, Ibrahim al when Ibrahim and Ismail raised the foundations of the Kaaba, as Allah calls it, the first dua they make is, Rabbana taqabbal minna. Well, I accept this from us. They these are two of the most blessed human beings. Before it's even lived. done. Yeah. Two of the most blessed human beings who have ever lived, doing maybe the most blessed act anyone has ever done, raising the foundations of the Kaaba yeah. in Mecca. And they're saying, well, Allah, accept this from us. Because without acceptance, any, the greatest thing means nothing. And with acceptance, the smallest thing means everything. And so... That's why the Prophet said, save yourself from the fire of hell, even if it be with half a date. Because a half a date that is accepted by God can save you from the fire of hell. And so acceptance is everything. So you got to ask Allah for acceptance. Tana dua. The second thing is, and I kind of mentioned this all throughout because I'm really, really trying to get this across. And that is, it can't be about a person and their ego and the fulfillment of their own self whatever they want to achieve. Self-actualization. Self-actualization. That is yeah. the word. You're the one who reads the fancy books, right? So <laughs> self-actualization. And it can't be about that. And that's why it always... The team might be small and humble. Like back in the day, 2007, trying to get something up and running. The team was two people. It was you and me. Yeah. Right? Or it could, that, that later on down the road, like now I can be a team of 20, 25, 30 people. But it doesn't matter. It has to be a team effort. Yeah. Qalam is Mufti Kamani, Umar Usman, Ustad Murphy, Brother Suhaib, uh, Sister Fatima, uh, Sheikh Mikail, Sheikh Muntasir, Sister Atifa. You know, the, all these folks are Qalam. Yeah. And that's, so you gotta have a team spirit. The Prophet came to build an Ummah. He said, this is your ummah, one singular ummah. We have to operate as an ummah. So you gotta, you, it can't be about me, me, myself, and I. It has to be a team effort. And that team has to be good, dedicated, amazing people that inspire you. Every single person at Qalam is somebody I'm inspired by and is way better of a human being than I am and is way better at so many things than I am. And so it, they actually lift me up. What's the old expression? The the rising tide lifts all boats. All boats, yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. And the third thing I was going to say is an important part of baraka in one particular effort, one area that you're trying to tackle is by not violating 
or doing wrong in other areas. Oh, okay. And that's where I'm not saying I've done everything right or I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I yeah. can tell you I go to sleep every single night. I have a I have a, a, a moment at night before I go to bed when everybody goes to sleep and it's just me and I reflect on have I done right by my family today? And I hold myself to that account every, every day. day. Every day, every night, without fail. And the reason for that is because particularly in this kind of line of work, particularly when you have kind of this, you know, ambition, and I, by nature... Well, and also, I mean, you it's very easy to say, I'm doing these things for a much greater purpose. That's what I was going to say. In this arena especially, because there is a kind of nobility, quote-unquote, yeah. to doing this. It's, it's, it's religious, it's spiritual, it's good. People are benefiting. And people will tell you they're benefiting. But... And, and then particularly knowing yourself, I know I'm a very driven, ambitious, um, obsessive person. I have a very obsessive personality. And so I know that it's easy to get lost in this and then not do right by my elderly parents. Right. And my wife and my children. And you can't, you can't build something while you're tearing everything apart. That just doesn't make sense. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm building a nice playground in the neighborhood, but I destroyed the whole neighborhood to build the playground. Yeah. It's, it's a graveyard, not a playground now. And it, I, I, I feel very strongly, those are the three strong elements. Dua to Allah, good people, team effort, and then you got to be holistic and ethical in how you go about the process. Um, I feel like those are the three ingredients for Baraka for me. Okay. That sounds like a good place to right. leave it off. Jack Lockhair, man. Um, hopefully people are listening and benefit from the podcast. And uh, I know we talked about some of the upcoming sessions you're doing. And what's really cool, uh, you've always been an awesome idea, guy, is that you're not necessarily focusing on the people, but you have these like themes and these ideas that you're exploring through these people. So I think that's really cool. Inshallah. All right. Awesome. Salam alaikum. Alaikum salam.